are people called to praise that name, that name that has been become so wonderful to us, a name that is dear to the hearts and souls of people who know you. It is the name above all names, the name given under heaven, the only name given under heaven by which any of us will ever be saved. By that name, we find our sin forgiven and washed away, and we are clothed now in robes that are righteous, robes that have been stained with blood. And so we pray, O God, that as we worship you today, that you will hear from the depths of our souls that there is there is a renewed confidence, a renewed sense of consecration, a renewed determination to be the people of God in all that they are supposed to be. Our Father, unless your Holy Spirit enables, we will never accomplish those commitments. And so we pray, we plead, that the Holy Spirit would lead in all of us, that he would warm the hearts of all of us, that we might leave here, not with a sense of duration, not with a sense of, well, that's finished, but with a sense that we have been with God and his people, and we have proclaimed praises which are so missing in our world today. Our Father, um, there are two elections that concern us. Our nation, indeed, is in a mess. And we pray that you will have mercy on us, O oh God. Send mercy, not judgment. Judgment is what we deserve, but mercy is what we clamor for. And Father, for our elder election, I do plead that you will put in place um, the men that you have chosen, that it will not be due to our negligence as a people that errors are made, that you would hinder us. But Father, do your sweet work of leadership in each soul and each ballot that we might come to the place where we're confident that God has spoken. Now, God, we do pray that you'll accept our gifts uh, as meager as they might be. They represent that we do trust you and we are grateful to be called children of the living God. And so, Father, we conclude this morning by praying together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. May I invite your attention to the book of Judges once again. Beginning at chapter 4, verse 1. And we're going to read through verse 11. Judges chapter 1. Excuse me, Judges chapter 4, 1 through 11. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Heresheth Hagoyim. 
And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time, and she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Benoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, I will, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree of Zanaim, which is beside Kedesh. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, oh, it endures forever. You know, about the last thing that a um, preacher, or, or any public speaker for that matter, wants to do is to bore his audience. That seems to be the most unforgivable sin among public speaking. But uh, apparently, the Bible does not share any such concern. Because, um, folks, it keeps on repeating the same theme, almost the same story, different players, different circumstances, but basically the same story. Um, why does she do that? That is the Bible? I I'm not sure, but perhaps it's because of the grandeur of the subject being treated. Perhaps it is that grace, grace that covers the sin of people is so important. Perhaps it is that this subject so needs to be heard among the people of God who tend towards performing their way all through life. That this has to be repeated and repeated and repeated. I think um, you who have read One Minute Manager realize that if you're leading a corporation, you can't say things once. You've got to say the important stuff over and over and over and over again. I want you to know somebody accused me this morning of reaching into my files and preaching sermons. I, I, that's not true. I've never repeated sermons. But the book, that is, the Bible allows me to repeat themes. Because it doesn't sense that there is any negative about repetition. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, if this subject bores you, if, uh, if, this, something, if this treatment of this text puts you to sleep, then I say to you, it says a whole lot less about my preaching skill than it does in your interest of holy things. 
Because, ladies and gentlemen, this is a subject that God sees fit to overwhelm you with, it appears, from the book of Judges. I'm sorry if I bore you, but here we go again. You know, our text even includes that word, that awful word, again. And, you know, because we believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible, which means that we believe that the Holy Spirit chooses every word that is ultimately penned by the authors, I think it was worth my mention that the Holy Spirit choose, chooses to include that word again. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again. Apparently heaven seems to be bored with sin. And why not? There is a monotony to it. You know, it's real difficult to be creative in sin because it's all been done before. Uh, sin is a, uh, is a boring routine, not the, not the fresh excitement that we... Uh, originally thought it was. The fast lane quickly becomes an old rut. But you once again take away the external restraints, Ehud in this um, instance. They had 80 years of peace while Ehud um, led them. But you take him off the scene and once again Israel shows her true colors. Remember my story about the classroom full of second graders and the teacher leaves the room and what you end up with? <laughs> A chaos. Well, once again, we see when the external restraints are removed in the person of Ehud, oh, the people go crazy. And, and we could talk about that further, about how crazy they went. But um, let's not. Because, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have plenty of opportunity to do that as the book unfolds. But... Um, It'll give us chances to talk about slavery and monotony and staleness of sin on numerous occasions. But I'm convinced that the real message, the real emphasis, the real focus, the real point of this story has to do with the source of all this deliverance business. Now keep that in mind, ladies and gentlemen. This is not a homiletical ditty. This is a great practical truth, and I, I hope to show you how practical it is right about in the middle somewhere, but what you get here is somewhat of a subtle insight into what God is trying to teach at least three people, Deborah, Barak, and we'll see J.L. the next time I'm with you. But the point has to do with who it is that is accomplishing the source of salvation. You know, Spurgeon once said that God will never allow his people to sin successfully. Isn't that great? Isn't that good news? He will not allow his people to sin successfully. But ladies and gentlemen, do you know the route that he takes to somehow retrieve his people from their sin? Oh, gosh. That's the part we don't like. But I can assure you, God will not allow his people ever to sin successfully. And so he devises means of delivering them. 
Somnimen are very unique. But here's one of those remedies as he once again snatches his people out of the jaws of their own carnality. And you can see that. It is, you can see in the text that God is insisting that he is the source of all this in a couple of ways. First of all, he chooses a woman. Now, ladies, don't get angry yet. Um, but um, she's called a, a mother of Israel in chapter 5, verse 7. Uh, yes, in 5, 7, a mother in Israel. But um, whereas you've come a long way, baby, um, in the 20th century, this is B.C., maybe a thousand years B.C., and women have not come a long way, baby. This was a male-dominated culture, and Deborah is the first and only woman to ever exercise civil authority in Israel at the calling, at the hand of God. God established her. It was to Deborah that God reveals his will, and it is to Deborah that he uh, outlines the plan that is to, to unfold in the uh, battle between Barak and Sisera. It is to a woman. And for God to give Israel a woman as her judge was to treat them like children. And believe me, ladies and gentlemen, that in this male-dominated culture, um, that was much discussed around the, uh, the uh, wetting holes, you know? Uh, men didn't particularly like that idea. This, this whole idea was a lot for some people to swallow, that it was a woman that was leading Israel. But if you're trying to point out who the real source of deliverance is, that, that makes a great uh, start. Because you choose the most unlikely, you choose the most improbable, you choose the most unacceptable. And in this case, it happens that he chooses a woman, improbable, unlikely, and perhaps the most hard to swallow for Israel. But through her, Barak is told, I will deploy... I will deliver. Um, you just go tell Barak, uh, has not the Lord commanded, go and deploy your troops. And this is in verse uh, 7. I will deploy Sisera and commander and with his chariots, and I will deliver him into your hand. So, as Deborah begins to share with her, with Barak, only what she has heard from God, Barak is to get the sense that it wasn't going to be Deborah that's going to deliver, it was going to be Jehovah. Now, um, another way, I think, in the text that you can see that, that God is insisting that he is the source of all this is that um, he frequently uses, in his deliverance, human instruments. Yes. And in this case, it's going to be Barak in league with uh, Deborah. Um, but those instruments that he chooses to use on occasion reveal more about God's dominance and preeminence in the situation than their own. 
These people seem to understand that. Notice that um, Barak, his first response to her is, Oh my goodness, I can't go if you don't go with us. Don't you know they've got 900 iron chariots? In, in his response, Barak is um, reflecting his own sense of inadequacy and his own lack of faith. But it's that kind of guy that God is going to choose because he wants to make sure that all of us know it wasn't the genius of Barak that did this. It wasn't the mighty triceps and biceps of Barak. No, 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 no. It was never in the arm of flesh. It was I. That's the point, ladies, or at least one of the points of this story. It was I um, that I'm going to deliver you. And um, Barak walks in knowing that he is um, not a hot shot. That if God and God's presence is represented in this prophetess, Deborah doesn't go with him, he ain't going. Just like Moses said, millennia before. Because I know that the key to any deliverance is God, not me. Boy, what an attitude. Isn't that a great attitude? Isn't that a great attitude to bring to life that says, um, if anything good ever flows out of this mouth or these hands or these legs or this body or this person, it is going to have to be God in his presence, God in his leadership, God in his Holy Spirit that is allowing this to take place through me. Oh my goodness! What a great attitude if such a thing were to exist among the people of God. It's such a, such a, a mindset that we walk into the ministry thinking, I'll tell you this, I ain't looking to Jimmy Young because unless God equips him, he'll never teach me anything. And very frankly, unless God in his spirit equips me to listen and to apply, I'll never learn anything. If this church gets built, if it moves ahead, if it does evangelism or discipleship successfully, it won't be because we've got a great staff. It'll be because God reigns here. God is the deliverer there. It isn't men. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know how much bickering that would set aside? Do you know how much pettiness that would eliminate? Do you know how much jealousy and envy that would eradicate from among us? Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, I see this text, Jimmy. I understand it says God's the source. Okay, move on. No, ladies and gentlemen, it's too important to move on. Because if we understood what these three seem to understand, we would never fight again. We would never argue again. We would never pit brother against brother, sister. We'd never do it again. Because we understand that the source of all life, the source of all goodness, the source of all spiritual gifts, the source of all spiritual blessing, the source of all spiritual progress, God is it. Not the staff, not the elders, not the preacher, not my Sunday school teacher. No, 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 no. We're supposed to be walking into this and saying, God, if you're calling me into it and you're going to be present in it, then let's get moving. But if your spirit does not attend every 
modicum of what goes on in the church of Jesus Christ. We do it in vain. I am, um, I have, I'm kind of a sports page reader. And if you are, you, you've noticed that, that there's a particular golf pro who is kicking up his heels about some of the things that the PGA Tour is doing to him. He's not at all happy about how he seems to be being used. And um, he is demanding a portion of the TV revenues. That's unprecedented, ladies and gentlemen. That's never happened before. Michael Jordan didn't get a portion of the TV revenues. Um, but now this particular golfer has decided that he's the whole show. And I had lunch this week with another golf professional. And he says that you know what's happened to him now? So many members of the tour can't stand him. Why was that? It was because a man came to the conclusion that the source of my success resides in me. All that could be avoided if we all came together and said, we all know. We all know at the base of our souls that God is the great deliverer and if he does not do it through the person of his Holy Spirit, we will stay in bondage to flesh. <clears throat> you know, guys, um, the point of all this is that God uses and the end result is that he uses fallible instruments and the end result is that he's to get all the glory. Bottom line. You know, he says in the New Testament that it's in my strength or it's in, it's in your weakness that my strength is made manifest. Are you here today? Strong. Confident like all the gifts that God has given you. Think you're a great teacher. Oh, my friends, all that we have is something God gave us. He's the source of it all. One other quick thing, and then I want to wrap this up, or wrap this up with a story. Um, you know, I wonder, as I read the text, what you thought about verse 11. Here we are talking about this battle between Cicero and Jevin and, and Deborah and Barak and the, 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 the nine iron chariots and all of a sudden, all of a sudden you get this verse 11 um, tucked in there. Now Heber the Kenite of uh, the children of Hobab and the father of Ma, Moses had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the Terebeth. Now, it, it is almost a parenthesis, but the author of this book suddenly interrupts his story and mentions Heber the Kenite. How does that little fact uh, become anywhere close to necessary in the whole story? Here's a mere detail, a, a mention of some unknown metal worker who leaves the south and moves to the north, a, a piece of geographical trivia. And why do we get this mention of that, uh, of, of a real estate deal, inserted into the story about a warfare between Barak and Sisera? Well, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, let me assure you, there's nothing 
that is a piece of trivia that's included in the Bible. And I, I may not understand it, and I may not see how it fits in there, but uh, one of these days, I will. Either now or later, I'll see what the importance of that uh, piece of what we think is trivia it fits in there. But ladies and gentlemen, if you'll look more closely, we didn't read this part of the uh, Judges 4, we will the next time I'm with you, is um, how beautifully and consistently this divine tapestry is woven together by the Holy Spirit for the deliverance of his people. Because it turns out that Heber the Kenite has a wife. And her name is Jael. And when the time comes, Jael just happens to be in the right place at the right time with the right tent peg. Gang, it is a lesson on the marvelous providence of God. Think back, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, when something uh, took place in your life and you thought at the time that it was just a piece of, small piece of divine trivia, something that may have seen at that time to be completely unrelated to anything, and then months later, you look back and you think, oh, now I know why God did that. That's what you have in this text, ladies and gentlemen. An insertion of a piece of uh, a real estate deal that God is going to use in the next uh, few months for his absolute perfection. All of that to tell you, he, he, he and he alone is our grand deliverer. He's down to the very details. Um, it seems to me that when you find a God like this, a God who even Heber's U-Haul was not outside his plan, uh, it seems to me that the one reaction we ought to have is to pause and adore him. I want to show you one other thing, and then we're finished for the morning. Find with you with me, if you will, the um, the book of Ezekiel. It's after Lamentations. It's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. And I want to read you a few verses out of Ezekiel 16. Because I think this will seal the story and the message of this story to your hearts. I hope it will. Follow with me, beginning at verse 1 of Ezekiel 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. And say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. Here we go. Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things uh, for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by, says the Lord God, when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your, in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. Keep looking, ladies and gentlemen. Don't let go of this text yet. 
I made you thrive like a plant in the, in the field. And you grew and matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed. Your hair grew. But you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. I thoroughly washed off your blood. I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and embroidered cloth. You, are, you ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and, the, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and, and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. That's what God has done for all of us, ladies and gentlemen. He found us in our blood and said, live. And then he nurtured us and cared for us. Saw us in our youth. Saw us in our young adulthood. He fed us and provided for us and clothed us and gave us ornaments. And now, ladies and gentlemen, that's the good news. Look with me at the bad. Verse 15. But you trusted in your own beauty. I don't need to read anymore. But it talks about how she takes those gifts and she uses the very gifts of God to spread out before her adulterous lovers. She becomes defiled using everything that God had granted her. And she turned that beauty God had given to her. And she trusted in that. Ladies and gentlemen, you know the cure for that? The cure is to go back and read those one, those 14 verses again and realize they are describing us. Things are going pretty well for you. Good job, good wife, happy kids, good health, decent retirement looking at you, saved, sin forgiven. God's using you in ministry. I rejoice with you. But when you ever forget where the source of all of that came, Trust in your own beauty. May God have mercy on us all. The point of the story, ladies and gentlemen, is God's the source. And if we all knew that and knew it at the base of ourselves, it would eliminate a great deal of misfortune among the people of God. Our Father, um, how do we how do we say we're sorry? 
how do we say forgive us over such treachery? Our Father, there is enough treachery in, in me to damn this whole group. And yet, O oh God, my only plea is grace. Grace abundant and free. Grace that has found out a sinner like me. And I pray, Father, that you would grant us all this, this attitude that is so necessary before we get into any battles for the Lord, any service to you. Something we've got to get straight is who called us, who equipped us, who clothed us, and who is with us. Because forgetting that will do us all great harm. Father, we want to be the people who walk into any setting, business or church or community or social, understanding that we are who we are via your great gifts. Father, you found us in our squirming in our blood, and you called us by the might of the Holy Spirit to live. And we're now new people. New people who now embrace Jesus Christ and do that heartily, gladly, willingly. And I pray, Father, that if you have led people here today who have not yet met the Savior we met when you spoke those life-giving words to us, give us the grand privilege of introducing that man, woman, boy, or girl to the Savior who is our only source of deliverance. Jesus, King Jesus. Nothing else. No one else. We pray all of that and do so in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord.